Wow, man, we got so much to be thankful for, so much that God's doing in our lives. And I mean, if God never did another thing, we could spend the rest of our life just thanking him for what he's already done. Man, Jesus is the issue. He is the central purpose for why everything exists. And so worship always brings us back to the center of why we are here. Why are we here? To worship Jesus, to make it all about him. Uh, the devil's greatest trick is to distract us to think that worship and going deeper into the Lord is actually a weaker virtue. That we would be better off taking uh, up things into our own hands and taking matters into our own hands and operating within our own strength. Uh, but Paul and, and the scriptures tell us something completely different. They tell us things like this. The weapons of your warfare aren't carnal. So they say, oh, they're not carnal? Man, that stinks. It's like, no, they're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. And so the reality that that is set in and come into our hearts and that we trust that is, is when things don't go our way, do we murmur and complain or do we start praying? Because the level of our faith will always be dictated by what we do in response to a crisis. If when something comes that's a crisis or that we don't like and we press further into prayer, well, then that would say we know who holds tomorrow and we know who holds our future. But if our murmur meter begins to go off the charts, what are we really saying? We're saying we really don't have that much faith in the Lord. I love what Proverbs says. It says it this way, that if your strength fails in the day of adversity, your strength was small. I was watching this action movie. Come on, y'all don't judge me. I was watching this action movie, and these three guys pulled up on a motorcycle with guns. And the girl character said, oh, man, this doesn't look good. And the hero figure said, looks like Christmas to me. <laughs> that we can get to a place where adversity actually looks like opportunity. For God to do something great. But in order for us to get to that place, we're going to have to get to the place to where we have our identity anchored in him. And what I'm finding in the scriptures is, is that God is always trying to affirm us in the identity of who we are. When Jesus comes on the scene, what does he say? How do we pray, Jesus? You got an obvious connection with the father. How do we pray? Oh, you pray like me. You say our father. He's my dad too. Yeah, he's your dad too. See, so he's pulling them into the reality of identity. What is he doing when he releases the, the children of Israel? The children of Israel get free. It's one thing to get free and delivered and to pass through the Red Sea. But how am I going to inherit a land when I don't even know who I am and I'm still living by an old identity of slavery? So God, the whole time, by doing these miracles and walking in relationship and giving them the law and doing these things, he's pulling them out of the framework that they are slaves and pulling them into the framework that they are sons and daughters of the Most High God. So unless God changes our identity or we start to believe what God says about us, we'll never step into the reality of trusting him the way that we need to. And so the book of Revelation is always affirming the church and saying, I know you feel small. 
I know you feel unheard. I know you look, you, you just feel pitiful, but in the reality of things, you are the winners. So the book of Revelation is always pointing us back to Jesus and saying, hey, don't forget, we win. Hey, don't forget, the kingdom of God is still advancing. Hey, don't forget, Babylon is falling. Hey, don't forget, the kingdom of God is coming. Hey, don't forget, Jesus is coming in the flesh, so watch how you live because you'll give an account for him. Hey, don't forget who you are. And to the level that we... Trust Jesus, it will be to the level that we walk in our identity, which is actually a bride. But when we don't attach ourselves to that identity, we've got nothing else but Babylon. And when we attach ourselves to Babylon too much, guess what we become? The harlot. We cease coming people that are in covenant relationship with God, and we begin to operate within a system that's compared to prostitution. What's prostitution? You gotta pay for love. What's God's system? Covenant. You don't pay for nothing, this is all grace. And when we become people of grace, guess what? We begin to bestow grace upon others. I love that picture of the lady uh, there's, there's a couple different times it happens, I'm not sure, but the lady comes in and, and, and I think she's a lady of ill repute and all this and she breaks that alabaster flask of oil and just is, is pours it on Jesus and it's just, and everybody else is like, man, this is so weird. And Jesus' whole mentality is, no, it's weird that you're not doing this. <laughs> that it would be more weird if she didn't do this. Right? And that was probably a real uncomfortable situation to be there. And here's the lady wiping her hair on Jesus' feet in tears and tears and ointment and perfume going everywhere, enough to be like a, a lifetime of savings, right? A whole year's worth. So this was probably a lifetime of savings. And it's all broken in that moment. And everybody else is like, oh, this is weird. Uh, you know, what's going on here? This, who is this lady busting in here and doing this? And, and Jesus is like, no, no, this was the, the right thing that everybody should have been doing. In other words, this woman here had more of an idea of who she was in him than the theologians at the table that wanted to debate and talk about him. See, one enters into the life, the other enters into the mental game of what we should and shouldn't do. And when we're locked up into systems of thought that are religious and traditions, we cut ourselves off from the life that God would have us to be walking in. That's why church folk are some of the most bound up folk you've ever seen. They're so busy trying to do good that they can't even find God. Because if it comes down to a list of rules, then ain't none of us going to make it. That I find that when I'm lost in the Lord and, I'm when, and when I've kept my heart pure and kept in relationship with him, I'm obedient and I don't even think about it. I was at the altar one time. And I was at the altar just down there praying. You know, it wasn't anything special. I was just down there praying. And all of a sudden I feel this big old hand on my shoulder. I mean, it was like a bunch of bananas just like <laughs> lopped over on my shoulder. I thought, oh my gosh, what have I done? And this big man turns me around. And I'm like, 
Oh, so this is how it ends, huh, Lord? Okay. I mean, mad face, red. I'm like, oh, my goodness, what is happening? The man said, I want to thank you. You saved my life. Then he went back to his seat. I don't know what I did. Every time he sees me, he says the same thing. And you know what? I act like I know what he's talking about. I don't know what I did. You know what it was? It's probably something so small and insignificant. But, and so what the Lord is teaching me is if you'll just walk in the life, the overflow of that will, resort, will result in the, mac, in the miraculous just based upon the grace that's on your life. Because if I'm operating in who I am, I'm not trying to be something else. But if I don't know who I am, I'm going to try to figure out how I can be something else. Or how I can look a certain way or do a certain thing. And so what God's always trying to do, he's always trying to affirm us in our identity. Remember what the spies said when they spied out the land. God had already given it to them, right? But when they give the report back, 10 of the 12 spies says that we were as grasshoppers in our own sight. That our problem is our own perspective, not the perspective that God has on us. Because if we saw us the way God saw us, We'd be so brimming with love and so full of confidence, we'd go tear this city upside down. But we've got the view that God doesn't look at us that way, so we keep a beat down view, and that's what Satan wants us to keep. Never step into your identity. Always think you're small and insignificant and little and walk around like that as if that's the humble thing to be. But when you're truly operating by grace, you don't have to worry about being prideful about stepping into the destiny of God because you know it's all grace anyway. You know, I used to get really intimidated to be in the room with certain kinds of people. And now I can pretty much be in a room with anybody and I'm comfortable in my own skin. Not in some weird, brash, arrogant way, but in the way of like, I belong here. It's okay. That God's doing cool stuff in my life. I don't have to be ashamed of that. I feel ashamed for the grace of God that's in my life. You ever done that? God just overwhelmed me with a blessing and you feel ashamed? You didn't even want to tell people you were so ashamed? Because you knew yourself and you knew that you didn't deserve it? But what's sad is, is that we never deserve it. <laughs> so it was... So it would have been worse as if I would have thought I deserved it and then would have received it with gladness in some kind of weird way. I don't know. I'm trying to, this is a really complex topic, but I'm trying to figure out how to walk in the grace of God and how to be salt and light. There's a reason Jesus come to the earth, and if he was going to just do everything himself, he would have stayed down here and not left us the Holy Spirit and us to co-labor with him. So that would tell me that Jesus says, you're necessary. That God could do it without you, but he chooses not to. That he actually wants to do it with us. So what does that look like? What does it look like to be salt and light? What does it look like in every situation to walk with the grace of God in my life, the presence of God in my life, the goodness of God in my life, and the overflow of that be such a glow on my face that people say, time out, why do you have this hope in you? It 
And you know what I found? Sometimes people interpret your hope as ignorance. I told somebody the other day, I'm more excited about life than I've ever been in my entire life. And the further I get in Jesus, the more excited about each and every day of my life I am. You know, they said, don't you know what's going on? <laughs> I was like, yeah, I'm fully aware. But I know the king. I know the plans he has for me are good plans, says the Lord. Plans to prosper and not harm me. Plans to bless me and keep me right in the middle of Babylon. So why would I worry when God says, don't worry? Summer on the map. What are you worried about? If God closed the flower, what's he going to do with you? In the middle of an oppressive Roman Empire. Don't worry. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you haven't been reading the Jerusalem Times, have you? Uh, actually, I created the universe, and I know how it ends. So I'm in a really good mood. Can you receive that, that God's in a good mood? That he's fully satisfied in Jesus? And that the wrath of God was fully poured out of Jesus on the cross so he can be in a really good mood with you and not hold your sin against you? That's got to get in the fiber of every bit of your DNA. Or you'll never step out and do anything for God because you'll always feel disqualified. But you don't qualify you. God qualifies you. He calls you. There's a reason why it's called the gift of salvation. It's the unmerited favor of God. <laughs> oh, man. Thank you, Jesus, for showing us grace. Man. Wow. His power generally corrupts. Right? But when power hits something as holy and righteous as God, it can only produce Him bestowing goodness and power onto us. The power systems of the world would want to hoard up the power to themselves so that they could control. You know what Jesus does? Greater things you're going to do. No, 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 God, you keep the power. Don't you know who I am? <laughs> yeah, I do. That's why I'm trying to you know, hook you up here. <laughs> You're mine. So I'm trying to hook you up. Because when you look good, I look good. Right? Remember that commercial, the guy that smoked a cigar with the suits? When you look good, we look good. <laughs> remember that? What was that? can't remember is that S&K? I don't know. People don't wear suits no more. It's just kind of a fading thing. And that's the thing about following the shepherd. Is that when we follow Jesus, we find out that we, we really don't want for anything. And that we walk the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Wow. So God says, when you look good, I look good. So guess what I want to do? Clothe you in a righteous, white wedding dress. 
and make you pure and holy so your testimony to the world can be, this is how I am. That God wants to see the goodness on your life and let the world see it so they say, I want to get in on some of that goodness. I want to get in on some of that joy. I want to get in on some of that peace. I want to get in on some of that miraculous stuff you guys talk about. And so God's always trying to affirm us, and that's what he's doing in the book of Revelation. He's talking about there's great multitudes in heaven, and that there's a wedding feast coming our way. So how can we be happy and praising God and maybe in the midst of a personal struggle or trial or whatever we might be going through because we know we're headed to a wedding feast. Who doesn't like wedding feasts? Free food? Give me a break. I've crashed many a wedding. I've done a few myself too. A wedding tributes a funeral. So in 18, we learned that Babylon, they started singing a funeral song. Woe is Babylon, fallen is Babylon. And you know who was crying about it? The merchants, those who were tied into that system and were so dependent on it, they couldn't trust that God would preserve and protect them. How do you know which system you're tied into? The kingdom of God and the bride and the wedding feast? Or Babylon? Which one makes you cry more? The thought of being out of relationship with God or the thought of losing something other than him? And so the, the bride here is, is uh, so we learned about in 18, like I said, this funeral kind of thing. So now we're kind of gearing up for this wedding feast, Revelation 19. After these things, I heard what sounded like the loud voice of a vast throng in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Now in verse eight, in chapter 18, there was three woes. Woe was Babylon, woe was this, was this. In 19, we get three hallelujahs. So something is coming to an end and something is being raised up that we didn't see coming. Okay? After these things, I heard what sounded like a loud voice of a vast throng in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. And has avenged the blood of his servants poured out by her own hands. Now this is in reference to Babylon, which was in reference in that time the first century Rome. Who was being very oppressive to the Christians. The Christians were being pressed into home churches and in private meetings, and, and some persecution was more severe in some places of the empire than others. Uh, but, but overall, there was, under Emperor Domitian, there was a pretty worldwide vicious spread of violence towards the Christians. And what I've found in Christianity is that sometimes it can look like you're losing, but you're actually winning. And whenever I feel like I'm losing, here's, here's, here's where I start, and then I work my way back to my situation is I remember Christ on the cross and I think about what that must have looked like in that moment. Because the disciples are hiding, the mom is crying. 
But if you remember, the whole time he's saying, I'm gonna, this is going to happen and I'm going to raise from the dead. Right? He's saying this the whole time. Something's going to die, but then something miraculous is going to rise in its place. And so I start at the cross, and I think, God, if you can take that and make it good, the murder of God in the hands of sinful men, and you can work that to be the salvation of the world, then you can take what I'm going through in this mess, and you can take it, and you can make it good. So I start at the cross, and I work backwards. And, and so here's what he's, he's getting their minds on this, is that there's going to come a judgment. But what I need you to do is to trust me in my judgments, and you go on about preaching the gospel and loving the world. Well, doesn't that take some pressure off? You mean I'm just free to love people? Yeah. How do you know that? Well, he gave me the same spirit that's in him, and his spirit is his identity. So what's his spirit like? Well, it's of power, love, Selma. So if it don't have to do with them three things, I ain't interested. I'm not interested. God will handle that other stuff. I'm just going to keep a sound mind. I'm going to love so I said, you got to outlove them and outlast them. Huh? Outlove them and outlast them. And then I'm going to operate in the power of God says I have permission to operate in. Sounds like it's to tread on scorpions, handle any deadly thing, to handle any crisis or obstacle. And I'm not arrived, I'm trying to figure it out. But I'm going to trust Jesus more than I'm going to trust my own heart and my own abilities. So what he said in his word, I'm really diving in and I'm really trying to figure out and take him at his word and really walk that thing out and figure out what it's like. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying Rome looks really big right now and Rome doesn't fall till 400 years later. So they're in the middle of this and God's saying, yeah, Babylon's going to get judged. Don't worry about that. Here's what I need you to do. Keep your eyes on the wedding feast. Keep your eyes on the party that's going to come. Keep your eyes on heaven. Oh, yeah, there's a vast multitude in heaven. Don't forget about that. They say, well, yeah, there's vast multitudes being persecuted. And Jesus is saying, yeah, there's vast multitudes in heaven. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, what did Paul say? Oh, yeah, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And men in the Western world, have we gotten an unhealthy view of death? We're scared to death of death. And I ain't trying to hurry up and get to heaven. Don't get me wrong. But is being in the presence of Christ a bad thing? Sounds like when I lay down my life, I get it. And when I take up my life, I lose it. And are we brave enough to lay it down and trust God to raise it back up? I don't know. Just some musings that's going on in my heart. Verse 3. Then the second time the crowd shouted, Hallelujah! Stacy did that one, I think. He said, he said, 
The smoke rises from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures threw themselves to the ground and worshiped God, who is seated on a throne saying, Amen and Hallelujah! Yeah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and all you who fear him, both small and great. Wow. Isn't that cool? So we had here a funeral that's coming to an end. Now we're getting ready to step into a wedding. Verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like the voice of a vast throng, like the roar of many waters, and like loud crashes of thunder. Now this is odd here because the last time uh, I can remember that we heard voice that sounds like many waters was John in chapter 1 when Jesus is behind him and he's on his face crying trying to figure out what's going on here and just, just hit with the glory of God and how glorious Jesus is. And Jesus puts his hand on his back and says, do not be afraid, you know, I'm for you, even in all his glory. But it says that the voice that he heard was like many waters. Now it's the people of God whose voice sounds like many waters. What does that mean? They've walked into relationships, stepped into the identity of the bride, so now their voice sounds like Jesus. Isn't that cool? And what I figured out is when you start spending some time with Jesus, you start talking like Jesus. Even when you try to pretend you're not. You ever done that? Somebody's trying to probe around, trying to figure out if you're a Christian or not, and you're like, man, I just really don't want to do that right now. Won't be left alone. And they keep probing and probing. And finally you're like, okay, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? This happened to Peter. Hey, you're that guy that walked with Jesus. Nope. Never met him. Oh, you're the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. Starts cursing. And what do they tell him? Your speech betrays you. He didn't realize Jesus had bled off in him through their time of encounter that he was still talking like Jesus even while he was cursing. (laughs) Let me be so close to Jesus that even when I'm cursing, somebody says, you've been with Jesus. I ain't saying go curse, okay? So you straighten up. I'm just saying. Isn't that cool? You've been hanging out with Jesus, man. Nobody talks like that. That he had the same dialect that Jesus had. You ever hung out with somebody that talked a different kind of way and you started adopting the way they talked? He had been so long with Jesus that he started adopting the way Jesus talked. Even in his intricacies and dialects and tones. That he couldn't deny that who he had been with. That's pretty cool. So now their voice sounds like Jesus' voice. The worship is coming out like the roar of many waters, like the loud crashes of thunder. So the bride starts sounding like the groom. And any of you married folk know, you start doing stuff the way your spouse started doing stuff. When you first get together, man, you don't realize how many different things. There was stuff I never even thought about. Right? It's like... uh, My mom taught me to do laundry a certain way. 
Well, guess what? Not everybody's mom teaches them how to do laundry the same way. I didn't realize that. I didn't think laundry could be a point of contention. So whose way of which mama told who how to do laundry is going to be the way that you're going to do it in the house? I'll tell you this, I didn't win that battle. So guess what? I started folding clothes the other day. I started folding clothes the way my wife folds clothes. I thought, my goodness, I have just been indoctrinated with the Gladwell laundry folding methods. You can't help it. You can't help it. She said a joke the other day. It would be something that I'd said. I said, you can't tell jokes like that. That's my part. So you start rubbing off on each other. And the two start to really become one flesh. And it happens in the moment you get married, but it is going on ongoing in a process throughout the entire marriage. So it's never that you're not more married than the first day you got married, but you're never arrived and never have to stop working on stuff either. That's why Paul says, oh, what a great mystery concerning marriage. Because how can we be so different but yet so unified and so one? And that's what God's calling us into. A relationship like that. That we would start sounding like Jesus as the further we get going in this thing. That when somebody starts going through a rough time, you're walking on the water saying, have courage, it is I. How are you talking like that for? Oh, because, well, I've been where you're at, and I can tell you what Jesus did for me, and what he did for me is what he wants to do for you. Uh, let's see here. They were shouting hallelujah. Still getting the hallelujahs here. For the Lord our God, the all-powerful reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. Because the wedding celebration of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Oh, wow. She was permitted to be dressed in bright, clean, fine linen. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Well, now, isn't that something? Because if we remember, in chapter 7, they had righteous robes, but they were white because they had been dipped in blood. Now they're white because of their own righteous deeds. Okay, God, what are you saying here? I thought it was grace and by your blood. How are righteous deeds making me white? Because when we begin to step into the identity of who we are in the bride and how washed we are in the blood of the Lamb, suddenly we begin to replicate the works and miracles of Jesus and the life of Jesus, and then our good works become an outworking of His grace that gets added to us as our, His credit, but yet something that we'd be held accountable for and something that He would judge us for and reward us for. Because the Bible says you're going to get rewarded for your deeds, right? That's still in there, right? So he's working them out through grace, but in that relationship, now the white dress, they've adopted their identity, and now they're working out what God's worked out in them. 
And now their white dress is the beautiful deeds that they walk in. So they've suddenly become identified with what God has done in their heart, and now they're really displaying it for all to see in their lifestyle. Then the angel said to me, write the following, Blessed are those who are invited to the banquet at the wedding celebration of the Lamb. He also said to me, these are the true words of God. So I threw myself down at his feet to worship him. So, so think about it. This, this bride was so glorious. This event was so glorious. John had to find something to worship. That he was so excited about what he was seeing, what God was doing, that he had to find some kind of something and begin to worship it. So he starts worshiping this messenger. Now, if anybody knew about not worshiping other things other than God, it would be this Jewish John, right? Like the, the foundation that God is one is like the, the Shema is like the, that's like the foundational thing in the Jew. Like you don't worship other images, right? Like you worship God. But John is so caught up in this moment and that he sees he's got to worship something. So he starts worshiping this figure. If anybody knew what Jesus looked like, wouldn't you think it'd be John? Who walked with him for three and some odd years or three years and some, some change. I don't know. It's put his head on his chest. Right? If anybody knew what John... So what's going on here? He starts worshiping this figure. And this figure says, whoa, 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 stop. I'm just like you. What John is seeing is a future picture of his redeemed self, and it looks so much like Jesus, he starts worshiping it. That when we get to heaven, our identity in Jesus is going to be so great that we're going to reflect him in such a glory that mere mortals would be tempted to worship us. Well, the Bible says that when you see him, you'll be seen as who you are, and you'll be just like him. Isn't that cool? Man, sounds, uh, sounds pretty awesome. So he throws himself at his feet. Don't do this, he says. I'm only a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold the testimony about Jesus. Wow. Worship God for the testimony about Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Wow. It's just awesome. It's awesome. Verse 11. Now, we're transitioning from a wedding. We went to a funeral. We went to a wedding. Now we're going to a war. Um, yeah, we're going to a war here. So the bride is going to have to get her combat boots on here, right? So uh, I was in New York one time and I saw a guy wearing a wedding dress with combat boots. And I thought, wow, that's kind of cool. Maybe the bride of Christ going on here or something. But, uh, no, I don't think that's what he was shooting for. But, uh, but really strange things go on. But, but this is kind of this, another strange thing is now the Son of God is going to war. 
a wedding, and then a war. We've kind of hit all the big events that you should have in some kind of something. Verse 11, then I saw heaven opened and here came a white horse. The one riding it was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and goes to war. His eyes are like a fiery flame, and there are many diadems in his crowns on his head. And in ancient times, the more diadems you had, the more authority that you had. So this is a picture of, of God's great authority over the nations. He has a name written that no one knows except himself. He is dressed in clothing, dipped in blood, and he is called the Word of God. The armies that are in heaven, dressed in white, clean, fine linen, are following him on white horses. This is where we get the picture that we'll be on white horses with Jesus getting involved in this battle. So the armies in heaven are dressed in white, clean, fine linen, and they're, they're following him on white horses. Verse 15, from his mouth extends a sharp sword, so with it he can strike the nations and he stomps the wine press again pictures of chapter 16 this is all kind of you know different pictures and not necessarily in chronological order and he stomps the wine press of the furious wrath of God the all powerful he has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh king of kings and lord of lords See, with this refocus of his vision, John is now ready to see the revelation of Christ returning to the earth from heaven. Now, I want to be careful here because this is a... But Peter says something to the effect of waiting. I need to preach on this sometime probably and do some work on it. But Peter says, waiting and hastening the day of the Lord. Can I wait on something and speed it up at the same time? Anytime you're reading the Bible and you find something weird, you need to research it out because there's a reason why it's there. Most of the time we say, oh, that's weird, I'm moving on. No, 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 you need to just stop and say, okay, that's weird, I've got to find out what that means. Because the weird things in the Bible generally is where the treasure's at, Okay? Waiting and hastening the day of the Lord. So it would say to me this, as I see myself as the bride, and I see myself as Jesus' own special son and daughter in relationship, and, I, and that identity is secure, I start to take my hands off of things more and begin to take a posture of confident waiting and in that posture of confident waiting, I get out of the way where God can do things that I was in the way of him doing. That's why the Bible says revenge is mine, saith the Lord. Don't repay evil with evil. Pay good with evil. Bless those that curse you. Why is Jesus saying that? Get out of the way. I'm doing something. Wait, and when you wait, you speed up things. Because God gets involved when we get out of the way. And some of us are propping up things and family members, and we need to get out of the way. Because the best thing that could happen to them is that for them to hit some failure and call out on God for themselves. 
I can't replicate my faith. Roger, you can't have my faith. And I can't have yours. Yours is unique to you and mine's unique to me. God's dealt to every man a measure of faith. And we do people a disservice when we won't let them find their own measure of faith. And then we end up being uh, getting specks out of everybody's eyes. Ministry of tweezer carrier. Get out of the way and let God do it. When the bride begins to take their posture, what does the bride do? Waits and prepares for the day. I proposed to my wife and it set off something in motion. I had no idea what was going on. He's going here and there and buying up this and mercury glass. I'm like, what is mercury? I've never heard of that. And this or that and the other. And the whole focus shifted from every other circumstance to the day. And that's the picture here is that all our focus would shift from everything else and say, oh yeah, there's a wedding day. And I'm preparing for it. When I do that, I wait and hasten the day of the Lord. It's awesome. It's awesome. Say, we're waiting on God. Maybe God's waiting on us. I don't know. Have to look at it closer. So that he will strike the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. And he stomps the winepress of the furious wrath of God, the all-powerful. Verse 16, and he has a name written on his clothing and on his thigh, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Now, remember, we were reading earlier about the wedding feast, right? Marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, there's another feast going on after this war. Check this out. Verse 17. There's a lot of irony here. Then I saw one angel standing in the sun, and he shouted with a loud voice to all the birds flying high in the sky. Get this. Come, gather around for the great banquet of God. To eat your fill of the flesh of the kings, the flesh of generals, the flesh of powerful people. The flesh of horses and to those who ride them, and the flesh of all people, both free and slave and small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to do battle with the one who rode the horse and with his army. Verse 20. Now the beast was seized along with the false prophet who had performed the signs on his behalf by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire burning with sulfur. That didn't sound like much of a war, did it? I'm thinking swords clanging and yeah. And it's like God just like, bloop, bloop. <laughs> Not much of a war there. It's like a whooping. You should say the whooping of God for the Son of God or something. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire, burning with sulfur, and the others were killed by the sword that extended from the mouth of the one who rode the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves with their flesh. That was a crazy ending. 
But what can we gather from that? Well, the fighting won't be too much when God shows up. And the sword was where? Now. So it sounds like if we've got the gospel or the word of God, we've got all the weapons we need. Amen. We don't have to enter into hand-to-hand combat and get crazy with folk. And just love on them. Tell them about Jesus. Planting seeds, man. The wheat and the tares grow up together. We don't know who's a tear and who's a wheat. I've seen people, I thought, man, that's for sure wheat. And them turn sideways and get all kinds of weird. Well, I guess they're a tear. Then they come find God again. No, I guess it's wheat. (laughs) Huh? That's why Jesus said, let them grow up together and then we'll figure it out in the end. (laughs) Quit pulling weeds because you don't know what it is yet. Let it grow up. It'll reveal itself. You just take care of you. Make sure you're in the 60-fold, 100-fold group. That's reproducing for the, for the Lord. It's reproducing for Him. So here we had a wedding feast, then we had another feast. So the kings of the earth show up. Heard there's a feast. Who's on, what's on the menu? You are. See the irony? That's what John wants to do. He wants to say, don't be afraid of the Roman powers. Man, you're going to a wedding feast. Just keep walking this thing out. Get out of the way. Let God work. Aren't you tired of trying to figure out God anyway? You can't do it. You have to walk in the peace of just knowing that he's got it and keep loving on him and keep walking in relationship. And He has a way of working things out that we just could never imagine, think, understand, or, or any of that. So, yeah. So God's got it all under control, and uh, he's awesome, and we're his. Man, we're his. What else do you want? You got Jesus, man. What else? Something else going to make you happy? Somebody shared this. I don't know if it's true. It was on the Internet, so it could not be true. It could be true. I'm not sure, but... Uh, it was somebody made a quote and said, I wish everybody could get rich and famous one time so that they could see how unhappy you can be when you get there. I said, yeah, that sounds right. It sounds like we have all we need right now. Right now we've got all we need. Lord, we just thank you, God. We thank you for everybody online. Thank you for everybody here.